You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. In 2004, a poll of artists, historians, critics, and curators asked what was the most influential artwork of the last hundred years? You know what they said? Wait, I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. What did they say? <laughs> I mean, it depends on what seat we're talking about, though, <laughs> when it comes to this artwork, I guess. I see what you did there. I appreciate it. <laughs> I worked on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad one of us thought it. I feel it. like who art ed. Try to slice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, 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 it works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, the podcast where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today is Jeff Arndt, the art teacher from Ranchview Elementary. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back. You can find a picture of the work being discussed this week and every week on the website whoartedpodcast.com, as well as linked in the show notes. Now, we're going to start season two with a deep dive into the piece dubbed The Most Influential Work of the 20th Century. It was Fountain. Fountain from 1917 by Marcel Duchamp, or as my college roommate referred to him, The Toilet Guy. (laughs) I'm just going to go right out there with how much in awe I am just by those uh, two dates that you mentioned. Okay? If we go... 2004, right? Yeah. And then the piece from 1917, that blows my mind to think that yeah. over that time frame, we're going with this piece of artwork. That's unbelievable. It really is. It really is on numerous levels. And for those who are not familiar with the piece, Fountain is one of the earliest ready-mades. And, you know, the ready-made was this idea of making art essentially out of found objects, you know, taking things that were already out there and then presenting it as a work of art rather than creating it and presenting it as a work of art. Um, Marcel Duchamp is credited with creating the ready-made, although actually his creation of the ready-made, just like his creation of the fountain, is a little bit uh, sort of suspect or questioned by a number of people. Nobody doubts that he coined the term the ready-made, but his first ready-made sculpture was a bottle rack in 1914, but a friend of his, Baroness Elsa von Freetag Loringhaven, have you heard have you heard of her? You never heard of her. Most people have not heard of her. She was a Dada artist, she was an artist's model, she was a poet. Um, and she was known for creating ready-made sculptures with things that she essentially scavenged. Like she was an, she was, you know, the pioneer of dumpster diving and she was known and documented to have created ready-mades and presented ready-made sculptures, though she wasn't using that term in 1913. So one year before 
Marcel Duchamp. So quick question then. Yeah. Where is, where's the line drawn or the connection between a ready-made versus a found object sculpture? Or are they interchangeable? Are they one and the same? I think for all practical purposes, they're essentially the same, you know? Um, I I typically think of found objects as like the media or materials for a sculpture or for a work of art, whereas I think of the ready-made as presenting that manufactured object or, you know, that found object without real significant modification. So, like, I think of, like... Um, like Louise Nevelson, you know, she's taking all those scrap materials and she is building and constructing from those found objects. Whereas like Marcel Duchamp or uh, Baroness Elsa uh, just took a toilet, turned it on its side and signed it, R. Mutt, 1917. Um, And that is another thing, actually. She, some historians say, actually created the fountain. Um, some people say not only did Duchamp not produce it, he, he says that he bought it from the, like, um, it was something Mott, uh, like plumbing company, you know, he bought it from the factory, but actually it was submitted anonymously using the pseudonym R. Mutt. And at the time, um, in 1917, Marcel Duchamp even wrote that one of my women friends using a masculine pseudonym, Richard Mutt, submitted a porcelain urinal to the Society of Independent Artists, uh, to the Society of Independence show as a sculpture. So the big question that people have is, was he kind of admitting that he took credit for her work? Or did he use her to submit the piece to stay anonymous because he was on the board of the. Well, there's so, the, I mean, and add that to the list of, of controversies surrounding this piece. I mean, it just grows and it grows and it grows. It really does. And that really is somewhat like typical to form for Marcel Duchamp. Marcel Duchamp was born in France in 1887 and he came from an artistic family. Like his grandfather was an artist. He was surrounded by his grandpa's art as he was growing up. Three of his uh, siblings, two of his brothers and his sister, um, they all went on to be successful artists. And I'm not too familiar with his family's um, artistic background as far as what were they making? And so like they, they were working in different media, like his grandfather was a sculptor. Uh, I want to say his brother was a printmaker and they were successful artists, but they were not like, they weren't Picasso level successful artists. You know what I mean? But they were in that world. They were very well connected. They knew artists, you know, Marcel Duchamp knew Picabia and like all sorts of different people within the art world. Um, and so like, I always find it funny because like, despite all of those connections, you know, he was, 
on the board of the Society of Independent Artists. He created Society Anonym. He advised people like Peggy Guggenheim and like directors of MoMA about their modern collections and the shows. He still liked to sort of portray himself as this like outsider and this rebel going after the art establishment. And it's just like he was part of the art establishment. Yeah, absolutely. Those are are big roles and those are some, you know, huge advisory positions and advisory roles that you're taking on. Yeah, I, like it, there's. I mean, we all know like there's always a little bit of just like how you're choosing to portray yourself as a public figure, but um, it like he sort of pretended to be all the things that like Baroness Elsa really was. Like she was this, she was this Dada artist who like from all accounts lived that lifestyle on the streets of New York and was like arrested for like her just bonkers things that she was doing like she wore like soup cans as jewelry and stuff like that and i think the 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 big thing we have to think about or at least keep in mind in the back back of our back of our heads is is time period and time frame yeah and and you know the dada movement was in the very early 20th century and it was largely a reaction against sort of rationalism in philosophy but also like just the horrors of that was the time of world war one, you know, um, the Dada movement was really just trying to be a little bit more playful and embrace random chance and embrace sort of absurdity and find humor. And that was very well suited to Marcel Duchamp. Duchamp studied art formally, but like even early in his career, he sort of made a living selling cartoons and he, he liked things that were sort of visual puns and things like that. So he was from like the early days. And when I say early days, I'm talking probably like 1905, give or take, he was making artwork that was a little bit intellectual, but also a little bit playful. Yeah. Um, and like one of those early works, like, like I said, he loved to think of himself as this rebel and outsider. So like one of the first pieces that made, he made his name for was the, like the nude descending a, a staircase painting. Um, and that was like one of his last paintings. Cause he, it, it wasn't his last, but he stopped painting when he was like 25 years old. Um, and so that piece I always think like when I think of like, you know, a piece being controversial, you know, 100 year early 20th century, I'm thinking like, okay, the nude is the part that people are going to have a problem with. But really, it's the staircase. That's where that's where the objection lied Um, in viewing the piece. That's absolutely hilarious. Yeah, because like like no matter what you call it, like you could call it like just shades of brown shapes, you know, because it's like you cannot tell at all what it is. Being a person that loves cubism and I I love the concept and the ideas behind it, I I, I get that when I look at this piece of artwork and and I do think to myself, all right, I'm not seeing it at all. And I'm really trying to figure out here, where where are we going with this particular piece? Yeah. And and so with this piece, what he was doing was like in a... In a sort of superficial way, it has some of the hallmarks of cubism because we see that fragmentation and those simple shapes. But he was trying to make it sort of kinetic and show that descending action. And it takes on this quality of like 
like a stop motion or, or a film strip where the images are superimposed layered on top of each other and it becomes this like blurry mess because like in each frame essentially you're capturing a different pose and, and they're in a different spot and so there is this vague sense of descending action and you know he put it up in the paris salon um what was it probably 1912 give or take yeah yeah and he put it up in the paris like submitted it for the paris salon and accounts of that always talk about the controversy of displaying it but like his like I said, he was kind of a well-connected person. So they came to him and said, like, they asked um, through his brothers. They said, can you talk to Marcel and tell him, like, can he change the title of this piece? And he refused. And I think the story says he walked into the salon and took it down during the exhibit and, you know, brought it home in a taxi. Um, You know, flair for dramatic, all of that. But then, like, I read these art historians who say, like, the actual controversy was they didn't know if it should be displayed with the cubists or in another section. You know what I mean? It's like, like, he's got... Controversy, too, is is almost unbelievable. Yeah. That would cause the controversy of of then the artist coming in in this big, you know, gesture of taking the piece down and, and storming out and leaving with it, you know. Yeah, but it's like, which is like in so many ways, he's like the art world's troll, like, you know, decades before the Internet, because he's just like he's doing stuff just to agitate and like and then taking his ball and going home. Yeah. But like, yeah, he he put it up there and and they displayed it. And then he took it down. It, from what I understand, it wasn't well received. People did look at it and, you know, it just sort of, it, it was almost like a taboo. It broke the norms of what they were, what people were expecting. Even at a time when cubism was generally accepted, this just like, it didn't fit neatly in a category because it's got those cubist elements, but it's also a little bit futurist and, and people just didn't know what to make of it. Um, yeah, I can see the futurist aspect of it. Yeah. Because of because he's trying to capture that motion and everything like that, um, and then you know he he brought it to New York where it was controversial, but I, I think better received at the Armory show. But again, like he's just I feel like in a lot of ways just hamming it up and playing it up as like the art world's bad boy, displaying that. No, well, giving him notoriety and beefing up beefing up his stature. Yeah. So then. If we fast forward a little bit, like I said, he he sort of got away from um, what he referred to as retinal art, which like talked about he, that was his way of I think it was a little bit derisive to to be like, it's just about looks and it's so superficial. You know what I mean? But he started making ready maids around like 1914. Um, I, like I said, 1914 was when he first did with a bottle rack and he was on the board of the society of independent artists and they were putting on a salon that was supposed to be unjuried. So essentially any artist who paid the entry fee, they said they're going to display the work. And 
the story goes, Duchamp wanted to test if they would hold up to, like, if they would stand by the principles that they laid out for that show. Um, because the idea was they, the Society of Independent Artists wanted that ex- exhibition to be more democratic. You know, any artist can put their work out there and then let the patrons decide what's good instead of having curators and a jury as gatekeepers and tastemakers. Does that make sense? And if you think about time frame two, with where you're displaying art, what you have accessible to you, how, how big of an idea was that? People are thinking about being more democratic and what does that mean in different areas of their life and so Duchamp takes what most people would say was probably like the most offensive thing he could think of not just a ready-made but a toilet you know Um, it was straight from the manufacturer so it didn't have that level of ick factor but still people did find it to be you know, offensive or gross, you know, too vulgar. Um, Like I've read accounts that say like it seemed too vulgar and scandalous to women, although it was submitted by a woman um, according to the accounts of that time. So the norms Uh, that were breaking and ideas that we're kind of tackling are, there's so many different layers to it when you start putting it in those different lenses that it just amazes me. It doesn't amaze me how controversial this piece would have been during that time frame. Okay. Not, I'm not, I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, I am absolutely astounded and just in awe of how that would have been received knowing who submitted the piece versus who actually created the piece and the genders that were involved and how that was perceived during the time period. Yeah. Well, and, and it's weird because like I said, nobody really knows who created the piece because, you know, one of the layers of complexity is Duchamp wrote in a letter to his sister that like a woman submitted this under the pseudonym, but at the same time he later on claimed like he submitted it himself anonymously because he was on the board and wanted to test whether they would live up to what they were doing. So having a woman friend submitted on his behalf would make perfect sense if he were trying to stay anonymous. When it, when it said it was submitted by a woman, was that Duchamp in his female persona or was it his friend? Nobody really knows. It's, it's surprisingly murky, but, um, you know, most historians say, he submitted it using a pseudonym, um, using that fake name of R. Mutt. And some people say that's referring to Mott, the company that produced it. And some people say that it's referring to like Mutt and Jeff comics and things like that. Um, but again, that's where that name is said to have come from. Um, and the story goes that it was rejected and then smashed. But what really happened from what I've read is it wasn't prominently displayed. They kind of hid it in the back of the gallery behind like a wall, you know? So like nobody's seeing it, Yeah. 
but they still they still held true to to have it and then just conveniently enough Duchamp makes this big spectacle of resigning from the board and he happened to have you know Alfred Stieglitz there to photograph and document the piece um you know like you have this prominent photographer documenting (laughs) there (laughs) just happened to be there um and so that's there's only one known photograph, that photograph of the original piece. Nobody really knows what happened to it after that. I mean, it probably was broken, whether it was like purposefully smashed or, you know, they just realized that they were done with it and threw it away. Sure. But since then, like there have been a number of replicas. I think like 17 replicas were made to Duchamp's specifications, which I think like, is hysterical, too. I mean, that, yeah. that is just so funny with the whole idea of the ready-made and the when you start taking the, <laughs> the, the message that you're trying to create in, in general and the background with that, and then that kind of event unfolds and, and ends, and then it's, all right, we're going to, 17 more of these, let's make them, let's do it. Well, well, 17 more of these things that were mass produced to begin with for the museum. Let's have these like artisanally crafted replicas instead of just, you know, going to the manufacturer who made the original. Like, it's kind of funny. So that's, I guess, the background to it. Looking at this original, what do you see? What's what's jumping out to you? I, th- I think first and foremost, it's the shock factor. And it's the shock factor of, of what you're putting on that pedestal for the public to see. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, I see or that I think of is this gender role and the mystery that kind of surrounds this piece with, is it a, a woman creating the piece but then having to um, have a male submit the actual piece? Is it a male creating the piece, but then possibly there's some mystery about him submitting the piece under, you know, female guys? I, I don't know. And then there's some irony involved in it as well, too. When I, I look at this particular piece and I think about somebody who's on this the society's board then trying to find cracks in the foundation, possibly, possibly not. Um, and then the photographer aspect of it too. There's just so many different things happening here. If I yeah. look at it from the lens of 2020, you know, it's, it's not shocking to me. But if I try to put myself in that frame of reference of where we're at in this particular time period, I mean, it's... It's a pretty remarkable piece. Yeah, and it's funny because it is, you know, the aesthetics or the looks of it, it is just a pure white porcelain toilet that is turned over on its side. So you see it from a slightly different angle. It is quite literally upended. And sort of figuratively, it upended people's perceptions of what art is and what art could be you know as you were talking about your reactions to it it was purely about the ideas everything you were describing you know 
to me, it was about the ideas of what does this represent in terms of the gender roles, the mystery of who, who created and submitted it because it was delivered by a woman, but with a masculine, um, a masculine pseudonym, Richard Mutt. And, you know, um, it may or may not have been created by, by a man, but like it, it, to me, in some ways it resonates a lot today because there is so much going on in discussing privilege in society and who gets credit for their work and their ideas and who is seen as brilliant and who is left to anonymous history. Yeah. You know what I mean, I mean, well, and think about, especially right now in, in our period of time, um, gender privileges, right? Which you, you're just talking about different types of privileges. And to think that in 1917, what, what was being done and, and discussed and where we're at now, how much have we, how much have we gone forward or haven't? I mean, at least now people are talking about the Baroness and whether she, whether she created that piece or not, it is worth knowing she was doing the same thing. She was exploring the same ideas and it seems like she was doing ready-mades a year before he was. And it's not like they did it independently of each other. They knew each other. It makes perfect sense that like, and, and I hate to say it makes perfect sense, but it does make perfect sense that he was elevated in art history because he had the connections because of his gender, because he came from Paris, you know, like, or he wasn't born in Paris. He was born in France, uh, like a smaller town, but you know, he did work and exhibit in the Paris salons and stuff like that. Like he had that artistic pedigree that people could be shocked by, but still accept. It wasn't that far of a leap. No. And and clearly he was able to buy all of the different, connections that he had in in different roles that he had as well too he occupied that privileged space where he could do things that were outlandish without being seen as really threatening to people because in so many other ways he embodied absolutely otherwise there'd be no way that he could be on or within these different groups and having these different positions yeah um but like like I say, getting back to this original piece, as I look at it from an aesthetic point of view, it seems very boring to me. You know, um, it's just it's it's an overturned, mass-produced object. The only modification he made to it, or she made to it, whoever made it, was just signing it Armut 1917. Um, and then from there, it's just, it's just the ideas that it, that it represents that seem the most interesting to me. And so, so to me, the, the most interesting thing, because I always think like art serves different functions and people, the first instinct, and I think through a lot of history, the idea was art, art's function was to be beautiful. And then this took it to a whole other way in a whole other way saying it's just about the ideas. And I think that's the most important thing here is because with the ready-made, what, what Duchamp and similarly minded artists were saying is the idea is the art. 
they put creativity as the central focus defining something as a work of art. And at first, like, like it, it seems like a ready-made is cheating. You know what I mean? Like, like on a, on a gut level as somebody who spent so much time practicing, honing my craft, I look at something that someone just literally plucked from a store or from a manufacturer or from a dumpster signed and put on display. And it's like, it makes me want to scream. Well, it's the classic, you go into a gallery or a museum and you see this piece and, and you either hear somebody say, or you think to yourself, well, I could have done that. Yeah. Like I, I, I always just picture like Jackson Pollock, you know, walking into a gallery, like, I put this canvas on the floor in my barn. I spilled some paint on it. Give me some money, please. You know? <laughs> well, at least, at least he went and he spilled the paint all over it versus putting the urinal upside down and, and signing a name. Is but that more to that but process that, or no? But that's really what, what creates the interesting question to me because then I start to think, well, at what point does something become a work of art that an artist created. I don't have to make my own paints because the way I spread the paint creates a picture that is something new and different from my own my own vision. But then you think about well someone who uses found objects and you know creates a sculpture from those objects. They're still arranging them and transforming them in a different way. So so the challenge of the fountain is like fountain is getting us to question like how far can we go where has where does something begin to have been transformed enough by an artist for us to consider it a work of art is there any debate if i've taken my my sculpting capabilities and i've sculpted the exact replica of this and then sign my name on it versus just plucking one off the shelf and sign, turning it over and signing my name on it. Or is it, is that one in the same then? See, I would, I would argue that, that those are the same. And I would also argue that it's, that's actually not creating art. Even if you're hand sculpting it to make that replica, because you're not creating your own path. You're not being creative in that. You're demonstrating a skill and a technique that is impressive if you can do it well. You know what I mean? But that's purely craftsmanship. And what what this piece gets us to do is think about like, well, the really important transformation is being creative to get us to see something in a different way. I see that idea, but... Can you argue? Even if it's as mi- even if it's as minor as turning it on its side, signing it and putting it in a different context, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I think it opens the door to a whole lot of terrible art because a lot of people say like if you're gonna if you're gonna call that art, then anything is art, and I think that's true. I think pretty much anything is art. The question isn't, is it art or is it not? To me, the question is, is it good? To what end? Is it good art, you know? Yeah. And I just want to say, I would love to see this piece with the 
with the plumbing involved and water flowing <laughs> through it, I, I think that would be another level of. <laughs> I think that'd be too much work for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're really into I, something then. <laughs> so I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three point rating scale. And where should this hang? The loo? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loop, British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's, there's a the poop loop. joke in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I'm gonna get into the gender thing a little bit more, and I'm gonna say if it's if it's Marcel doing all the work and putting it out there, I'm keeping it keeping it in the bathroom. But if I'm knowing that the Baroness is is the person behind this, I'm throwing it right yeah. in the Louvre. It, it goes right in the museum for me. Interesting. And so, I, I think in 1917, if a, uh, a a female artist is is having these you know statements and thoughts and putting it out there, absolutely, yeah. this is to me speaking volumes and really has something huge to say. Not that yeah. you know he doesn't have a concept behind it. Certainly, it just doesn't have the same impact for me coming from a male. So you think this goes in the Louvre. I would put this in the lab for essentially the same rationale. Like I I think the ideas behind this are interesting. I think, you know, what it says about society, what people will accept, who gets elevated and who gets marginalized. You know, whether whether the Baroness created it or not, the fact that there is this mystery surrounding it, it it starts a conversation and that's what this piece really is all about is starting that conversation. It's challenging our perceptions of what is and isn't art, what the artistic process is, what has to be done for something to be considered a work of art, you know, is talent an unfair advantage? Um, you know, all those in, in connection, right? Yeah. And so, so I think like, the ideas of democracy and what can be displayed and what can be considered art are good. The other thing, the dimension that I think is lost in all of this is there was an industrial designer who had to design that fixture and like manufacturers, people working in the factory who had to physically produce it. And I feel like, that's one of the things that bothers me most about ready-mades is it takes credit away from the people who actually designed and produced the, the work. Well, and especially yeah. in, in, in 1917, not knowing the process for creating yeah. one of these, uh, a, a mass produced kind of thing in a factory. I'd love to know how many, uh, how many people it took to actually make one during that time yeah. period. That'd be really interesting to know how many other hands had a part in creating this. And I think it would, I think for me, the thing that I, I would have find found more interesting is if after this, he had given proper attribution to everybody, you know, put, put the object on display, but also then recognize that art is in some ways a collaborative process where you're always taking other people's work. There is a, a some level of appropriation in pretty much everybody's work, unless you are, you know, 
those indigenous people who are creating their own pigments and creating their own stuff, like doing every level of it. Yeah. But for the rest of us, there is some level of appropriation. And I think this would have become even more interesting if there were attribution and recognition of that stuff in the ways that, again, you know, in its context, 1917, that would have been really advanced because I think it wasn't until like the pop art movement that people started to say like commercial arts are not a lesser form. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, And that's a comparison that I really draw upon when I think of this piece. And that's probably why this is so influential. Yeah. Because Because it, it did change the way people thought about art. Thank you very much for taking the time to come in and talk to me about a toilet. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted. If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.